My original training was done at the Zen Buddhist Temple in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which was just starting out. We were just a baby. And our mother temple uh, is the Zen Buddhist Temple of Toronto. So my original training was done both in Ann Arbor and in uh, Toronto, Canada, where I got to have the wonderful experience of being seen as a minority not because of race and ethnicity, because of nationality. So um, I, I got a lot of jokes about Americans, all of which were completely deserved. I had no defenses, so I just had to suck it up, and I did. And that was a really good experience for me and part of my multicultural um, training. S- uh, we worked a lot. Our practice was mainly meditation, Uh, manual work, and serving the sangha. We lived under a vow of poverty as full renunciates. And uh, it being the early 80s, we were also uh, really trying hard to see how we we could build community with lots of mistakes and imperfections and some very hilarious times. And um, those were very rich times. So one of the practices that was given to us since we did not uh, have time for and we did not do scholarly study per se uh, was the practice of reading one page a day, uh, if we had time, from uh, the Dhammapada, which is what has come down to us as the sayings of the historical uh, Buddha. Now, according to some scholars, uh, it being having gone through a process of three or four hundred years before these teachings started to be to be written down, one could argue, well, maybe, how do we know it's the sayings of the Buddha? And I don't know. I wasn't there. All I know is that this practice of uh, reading the Dhammapada quite frequently has so enriched my practice since 1982, and it's just something that that I do quite a bit and and I reflect on. And this is one of my favorite passages that I would like to share with you as we incline our minds towards um, the retreat coming to a close and how we enter the hectic, uh, pressured quality of our everyday lives in which it seems so often that we're swimming against the stream uh, in order to be mindful. That perhaps the slower we The more we try to slow down, the more it seems that the world speeds up. And uh, that can can seem kind of counterintuitive. So uh, this passage is one that I quote often and that I try to live by. And there are various translations. This one is by Thomas Byram, and it was recommended uh, to me. It was the one that was given to me by our original teacher, And I've supplemented it by reading some other translations. So according to this, the Buddha said, So live in love. So sometimes we fall in love, and we may fall out of love. However, how do we live in love? So live in love. Do your work. Make an end of your sorrows. 
foresee how the jasmine releases and lets fall its withered flowers. So take some time to study. It doesn't need to be the jasmine. If you're around any flowers or, or trees, which we're fortunate to be, uh, this area has a lot of growing stuff, and you may have some house plants. Just take some time. Sit around them and wait until some little thing falls off. It does so without will. It does so without screaming, no, 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 I'm dying. Uh, it's, it's, it's something that's very natural. For see how the jasmine releases and lets fall its withered flowers, let fall willfulness and hatred. So as part of this practice, that's what happens. I kind of think of it as like karmic chunk sometimes just falling off. Or where I come from in the Bay Area, we have these eucalyptus trees. And they've got this shaggy bark that is constantly peeling off. So at night, I used to live at Green Gulch uh, Farm Zen Center. And I, I was in the back of this house trailer in this eucalyptus grove. And at night, you could just lie awake and hear the eucalyptuses shedding, like And every once in a while, a branch, thunk, and then an owl would sometimes hoot. Uh, And so there was this constant shedding. So let fall willfulness and hatred. Are you quiet? Quiet in your body. Quiet in your mind. You want nothing. Your words are still. You are still. By your own efforts. So this is really important. We can look to others for inspiration, wisdom, guidance. Um, you know, they don't need to be called teachers. Hopefully we all have dear friends and um, uh, things that we read in books and things that appear, teachers that appear spontaneously to us by our own, and yet we have to do this by our own efforts. By your own efforts, waken yourself. Watch yourself and live joyfully. So today is um, a joyful day in that it's a celebration of Juneteenth. Today is June 19th, also known as Freedom Day or Emancipation Day. And this celebrates the abolition of slavery in Texas on June 19, 1865. This was two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation because the Confederate forces controlled Texas. And right now, uh, in my home area, I live in Oakland, right near the Berkeley border, there's a Juneteenth celebration, I'm sure, going on. And one year I was at Juneteenth and I was working in an activist uh, booth from um, basically it was, it was a group of Japanese Americans who were trying to spread literature about Lieutenant Aaron Watada, the first commissioned officer in the United States Armed Forces to resist uh, and refuse deployment to the war in Iraq, saying that it was... Um, 
it was a war that was against his conscience. He was a very faithful soldier, and yet upon reflection, he decided to take this radical act. So we had a booth with origami and uh, some candy for kids to try to draw them in, and uh, and I was enjoying the performances, the barbecues were heating up, and I went to get a snack in this restaurant that's right there on Martin Luther King Jr. Way in Berkeley, near the Ashby BART station. And I was sitting there and having a sandwich or something like that, and suddenly an, an a cappella group who were eating their lunch stood up and just began singing and gave us a free concert. In a certain way, it was promotional because I then did promptly go and buy their CD because these <laughs> folks were great. But uh, they didn't, you could tell they didn't do it for that. It was because it was something that they could give. It was a form of dana. It was a sudden instant community of those of us. It was like a happening. You know, these days they have those flash mobs. Well, that, it was just a spontaneous thing where suddenly a table full of people stood up and started, started singing. Beautiful, beautiful a cappella music. It was so joyful. And uh, that's really marked in my mind, the spirit of, uh, of Juneteenth. So freedom, as is t- uh, said in the classical teachings that have come down to us, freedom is sweet and joyful. That's its nature. And uh, there, there are also suttas in which it is recorded that the, the Buddha gave special teachings, gave teachings to the order of, uh, of women, of nuns, of bhikkhunis or bhikshunis. And at the end, it has come down to us that the nuns replied, thank you for the teachings Our minds are peaceful and satisfied. Our minds are peaceful and satisfied. So because of the beautiful practice that has gone on this weekend, because I've been able to and fortunate to see the diligence of your efforts and to hear, be privileged to hear in the group interviews Uh, some parts of your stories, the difficulties that you're facing with courage and with openness and, as Arena said, vulnerability, because we need to become vulnerable in order to learn and grow. And this takes a lot of strength, takes a lot of guts. And uh, so because of that, Really, as the weekend has gone on, though we may think of it as short in some way, practice is always very timeless. We can think of meditation as entering timeless time. We don't know how long a moment may be. Time is very subjective. Sometimes, chronologically, a short period of time is so spacious, and other times, Hours go past just like that. Our child is grown up. Dinner is eaten. Or, or things can, be, can take a very long time. So for me, this weekend has been an experience of really settling in to be with all of you. And I can say that 
increasingly I have felt my mind is peaceful and satisfied. I'm quite satisfied and, and peaceful to see that through your practice, your efforts, and also the community that is forming and thriving uh, here in this part of the country. Not without problems, I'm sure, because wherever there are people, there are problems. Uh, But because I'm coming from the West Coast, I'm really able to come, I think, with fresh eyes and admire and see collectively and individually how hard you are working and how productively, what wonderful things are coming out of this. Of course, June 19, 1865, wasn't the eradication of the effects and legacy of slavery. And that is where we enter into our understanding of the law of karma, or kama, as Arena was teaching on yesterday. And in all of our lives, we can see the effects of causes and conditions, often negative from oppression in its many forms, and any kind of negative consequence which comes from failing to understand and to treat others, and I'm going to include the natural world and the environment, as worthy of our respect, worthy of our love, and worthy of our protection. It can also be seen that when we look at our history, that there has been progress, there have been bright spots. And I encourage any of you who may feel discouraged, in despair about your own lives and the illness, the difficulties, the challenges, uh, very real these days for many since the economic recession hit, and true at any time because we are human, to take some time each day to reflect on, you might even want to journal, reflect on some of the good things that you have done, the ways that you have seen your efforts blossom, and the kindness and benefits that you have received from others. This is a very valuable form of reflection, and it can lead to spontaneous gratitude and increased well-being. So in the time of the Buddha, the establishment of a spiritual community of nuns, bhikkhunis or bhikshunis, was also a move towards more freedom for women of the time. It has come down to us in a text called the Terigata, which means the songs or verses of elder nuns, some of the voices of these remarkable women. The nun Muta says, so this is a translation, so freed, so thoroughly freed am I from three crooked things set free, 
from mortar, pestle. So those of us who come from cultures where there's a lot of grinding up of things using mortars and pestles, we can make salsa and various kinds of sauces. My mom was actually one of the first women pharmacists in Ohio and probably in the nation. And at that time, pharmacists still occasionally would use a mortar and pestle to grind up things and make uh, medications. So the mortar and pestle was one symbol of women's work in the kitchen, which was often probably included carrying their own water, washing everything by hand, endless preparation of food because people are always eating things, and then washing up after the food was eaten. So freed, so thoroughly freed am I, liberated from three crooked things set free, from mortar, pestle, and crooked old husband. (laughs) Having uprooted the craving that leads to becoming, I am set free from aging and death. I am set free from aging and death. So does this mean that miraculously, Um, Muta became immortal and is hanging around somewhere today? Uh, No, probably not. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I would venture to say no. In in the teachings and the practice that have come from us, uh, perhaps we might say say that, um, that this practice gives us the opportunity of liberation from the fear of the ill effects of aging, illness, and death. We regard those things as being inevitable parts of human life, and we also see that we can change our relationship to how we experience them and our thoughts and feelings about them, of fear, of anxiety, uh, which are totally natural. I mean, how natural is it to fear dying? Totally natural. And as human beings, we have the opportunity to come into a different relationship to this understanding of our own mortality and the normal course of human life, which usually does include illness, aging, and death. Everyone is aging. Even uh, a baby that dies very young has progressed from birth to death. So uh, issues of aging are, affect all of us. It's just that some of us know, of, know it and some of us don't. Issues of uh, ability, disability, um, illness. And when we speak of death, we're not only speaking of death of the physical body. Often our fear of death means our fear of death of who we feel we are now, of a relationship of um, a career. Basically, it means our fear of negative transition and change into the unknown. That's basically what, what death is. So physical death, of course, is a big one. Let's not ignore that. However, uh, there are many different kinds of, of fear of death. And uh, for those of us who practice I think it's pretty common that when we get down to it, when we get down to it honestly and deeply, that anxiety is there. 
Uh, and why not? Why not? It's a big part of our lives. And these songs give us a promise, give us a vision. I am set free from aging and death. The nun Dhamma sang, Wandering for alms, so this points to the tradition of mendicancy, mendicancy or begging. So alms means offerings, uh, and uh, you have your alms bowl, your begging bowl. And when you depend on others, uh, the tradition and as, uh, as monastics, because you don't have any personal property, is to, um, in some countries, and um, really in one form or another, all monastics do this, is to extend the bowl, which is the empty vessel, showing the need, and to humbly ask others, will you please support me in my practice so that I am able to return something to you by serving you in the many ways that clergy and monastics and teachers uh, serve others. So once again, it's natural giving and taking. And sometimes it's better than others. Uh, So it's very uncertain when you live in this way. So the nun Dhamma sang, Wandering for alms, weak, leaning on a staff with trembling limbs. So perhaps she was old, perhaps she was ill, perhaps she was both. She wasn't in great shape, right? Weak, leaning on a staff with trembling limbs. I fell down right there on the ground. Seeing the drawbacks of the body, my mind was then set free. Seeing the drawbacks of the body, and I don't think she meant drawbacks in the sense of like the body is intrinsically some kind of drawback. But let's face it, many of us struggle with our bodies. And uh, as we get older, things inevitably start to fall apart. Sometimes younger, that happens. Seeing the drawbacks of the body, my mind was then set free. And traditionally, uh, one way or another, In this uh, practice, there is the observation of the way in which uh, the physical body, our own, because we mostly care about our own, uh, and that of the ones we love, which has come together due to many causes and conditions. So, I mean, what were we before we were born? I don't know. But something came together. There was, like, obviously a sperm and an egg. And lots of other conditions ca- came together so that, um, uh, you know, pop, something appears and manifests, and it's Arena or Musham and La and each of you. Uh, and uh, so, so that's birth. We call that birth. And then there's some kind of life that happens, and then... And then there's uh, the physical body uh, goes back into its constituent elements, and we call that death. So this is a great contemplation. And if you're very prone to depression, don't do it, because uh, that can just lead to some downward spiral. Uh, however, we do have to deal with it one, one way or another. And my um, 
as some of you know, one of my uh, very closest Dharma friends is uh, the Venerable Suhita Dharma. He and I have been teaching for several years, and again this year we'll be teaching uh, the People of Color Retreat at Vallecitos Mountain Refuge in the wilderness outside of uh, Taos, New Mexico at 9,000 feet. It's way off the grid, so it's very, very beautiful. Alpine meadow, just gorgeous. And uh, Bonte, as he likes to call himself, is the first African-American to be ordained a Buddhist monk. And he is been called the most senior monk in the United States because he ordained as a Trappist monk at age 14 and a half. So he's been a monk in these celibate orders for forever and a day and um, has wide experience of practice in all of the major lineages of Buddhism and ordination and has just kind of lived all over the world. And uh, so my favorite thing, of course, is to get together with him or talk to him on the phone and hear his stories. And uh, once uh, some of the uh, yogis and people of color in Vallecitos were asking him about the traditional practices of contemplation of death, which um, in some of the early countries meant that, that you go out and you sit up all night in meditation, actually in the charnel grounds, in the graveyard, which are not like polite manicured graveyards with everything in the ground, you know, and everything, which can can be spooky to some people. This is like with bodies lying around in various stages of uh, decomposition. And someone said, said, did you do that? And Bonte said, he said, he said, yep. He said, I did. And they said, well, how was it? And he said, he said, actually, I wasn't scared at all, but the smell was terrible. <laughs> so that's something that in our society we often are shielded from. Everything is hygienized. It can be hidden. Uh, it's kind of cosmetized. And uh, I think it's useful for me, certainly, to remember that the practice that we are doing and these teachings came from very real times, as all times are real, but for times in which birth, death, illness, suffering, oppression, and uh, very uh, severe poverty were not hidden. They, they were quite out in the open, and people had to deal one way or another. And when we look closely at our own times, it's not so different. The forms may be different. It's not so different. So how is it that we become free? What is the essence of liberation in this sense? From the voices of these elder nuns, we can clearly see that it's not, um, it's not just about going into some kind of meditative trance and then kind of transcending everything and through some spiritual haze. <laughs> that uh, the liberation from oppressive social forms, uh, these women who were subjected to the uh, sometimes uh, brutal treatment of their husbands trapped within uh, their marriages, uh, seen as property, uh, 
and really consigned to two lives where they did not have, I'm sure, most or many of the freedoms that we may take for granted today. That for them, the monastic sangha was uh, represented an alternative path, a path in which they were not always uh, working for their children, for their husbands, uh, confined within roles, that there are many rules, don't get me wrong, in the, in the monastic sangha. And yet this could really be seen as a form of a path of liberation and practice in which this profound spiritual opening, this profound spiritual liberation could be and was achieved. Very often, as we look around, uh, when we begin to do our study and our practice, the teachers and the teachings that seem most accessible, seem most available, are often identified with, um, with men. However, as Wendy Egyoku Nakao Roshi who is the abbess of Zen Center of Los Angeles, has written her own realization when she was going through the process of becoming a teacher and saying, where are the women? Where are the women? Was to realize at a very deep and cellular, cellular level that the lineage of women has come down to us, as she said, in an invisible stream from the past. It's there. It is unbroken. And we can access it through historical research and reclamation of texts, which is now being done, and perhaps even in a more direct way through our own experience of understanding through our body minds that this is a path that is open to everyone. We may self-identify in different ways, and this is a path that is open to all. So liberation from oppressive social forms offers the conditions for spiritual liberation as well. And those of us who have been involved in what's sometimes called socially engaged Buddhism work towards that end. Uh, Arena and I both do activist work, and I am a member of the International Advisory Council of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship as well as Interfaith um, uh, Worker Justice, IWJ, which is headquartered in Chicago and does wonderful work for workers' rights. And some other organizations which are, uh, which are delving deeply into seeing and working with this connection between... Uh, Social liberation, social injustice, relieving social injustice, 
and spiritual liberation. So we can see them as, as intrinsically tied together. Until people have the basics, enough healthy food, clean water, healthy accommodations, roof over your head, and basic physical and psychological safety, it is not impossible, but for most people, myself included, it's very difficult to be able to sink down and do spiritual practice. So we may hear the stories of the exceptions. Sometimes people with disabilities will say, please, whatever you do, don't call me an inspiring example. I'm just trying to live my life. So because we have the cult of the hero and the myth of of the hero, the hero's journey made very popular by the work of Joseph Campbell, and of course that's all fascinating and great, but I realized at a certain point in my practice that I'm going to wear myself out, burn out, if I try to be a hero. I'm just struggling to live my ordinary life. I was a single mother. My kid was born on aid from the state, Medi-Cal in California. One of the consequences of living under a monastic vow of poverty is you become extremely poor, and that has impacted my entire life. I have no regrets, and I recognize that that it's had a big impact because the years in which I might have established a career as a professor of creative writing and literature, which I was trained to do, which I would love to do in many ways, um, I wasn't. I was off running around in these uh, Buddhist meditation centers, helping to build them and, and serving the Sangha, and learning a lot and having a lot of fun, uh, but not, certainly not building up any pension account anywhere. So uh, those of us who have been involved in this work with a great deal of sacrifice do so because we, we passionately and we clearly see the link between the need to work for the causes and conditions in which people can then make the choice, if you are so inclined, to take that additional movement, to make that additional gesture and towards saying, saying, okay, I have my basic needs in place, it may not be perfect, and I wish to take the path of spiritual liberation and freedom so that I may discover for myself not just hearing from others, which can be, you know, entertaining and inspiring, uh, and that's, that's fine, but find out for yourselves. Taste for yourselves. Even for a moment, even interrupted by long periods of despair or distraction or boredom or just being plain busy with taking care of paying your bills and uh, caring for your kids and putting your life together and getting your car registered and 
fixing your computer, all of those things. For those of us who've taken that additional, made that additional movement to say, we know that there is something more beyond the establishment of as much security as possible in terms of housing, of food, of insurance, of uh, people who will carry on our legacy, all of the ways in which we look for security. And there's nothing wrong with those ways except to know that they are all impermanent. And so what is it that we can realize here and now and do not fool yourselves because we may think, oh, well, maybe if I could go on retreat for a month or a year, then that would do it. But in a weekend retreat, hey, that's too short. No, that can actually be happen at any time, uh, any place. There is always the opportunity to taste spiritual liberation and freedom. Because of this, uh, a friend of mine says, uh, meditation retreat is not a retreat. It's not going back from anything. It should be called an advance. And on their Facebook page, uh, this person said, uh, said, I'm really looking forward to a 10-day advance. <laughs> so we were going like, yeah, go. And from early in 2010, maybe even 2009, speaking about advances, uh, La Arena and I engaged in some very long uh, phone conversations about how we could create a retreat that was as open and inclusive as possible. So this is called a women's retreat, and we wanted to look at what that actually meant and how we could create a safe container that was as open as safe, as welcoming, and inclusive as possible to people who may self-identify as women, as trans, as genderqueer, and, uh, and other ways in which they may identify. So we want to advance. We want to grow. And that's, that's the natural movement of life. That you may buy a little plant, and think, oh, that's really a nice little plant. It fits right here. If it's healthy and it grows, what happens? It just gets bigger and bigger, and it puts out all these kind of leaves, and at a certain point we think, oh, well, that's really nice. And then at another point, it's we have to get another container. So um, so we're in the process together of co-creating a new form which enlarges our container, and therefore enlarges our minds and our hearts. We wanted to create a container that was safe enough in which we can acknowledge that life consists of change, of growth, of constant change and flux. And that means fluidity, which includes fluidity of gender. I believe that it is in places and spaces like this that we can begin to explore how alive and ever-changing our gender expression can be 
in a truly open and free society. So perhaps that may seem to be just in small ways or in moments, but that's how everything begins, in small ways, in moments, and we can grow. We can advance. And looking ever larger, we can also say, can we envision a larger society in which there is more freedom, there is more self-expression, there is more total aliveness in which each person who enters the space of practice and who enters the space of the shared spaces of society without having to feel they need to hide or check parts of themselves at the door. Can we envision such a society and can we begin to birth it here and now? The time is never then and there. It's always here and now. So this is an open question that I'd like to send you home with. In my tradition of Zen, it can be called a koan. And a koan has been called a riddle or an unsolvable question. However, it's said that there are answers to the koans. It's just that we don't get there by our usual methods of thinking because our usual methods of thinking are usual. They go down habit energy paths. And the truly creative, the truly radical, the truly transformative ideas and realizations uh, come from not thinking and not visioning and not being in the usual ways. In other words, liberation and freedom. So our practice is not just about becoming calm, serene, nice, kind, peace-loving people. Now, I like all of those things, so... um, You know, don't get me wrong, Uh, I do. And our practice is really, is often people will say, wow, you know, Buddhists argue? You fight? I thought you were just always so serene and and tranquil. Well, uh, no, we are people. (laughs) And uh, and the path of liberation includes uh, being serene and nice and kind and peace-loving and also uh, fighting and, and being agitated. And it, it really includes, includes everything. When I was um, practicing in the monasteries in South Korea, which is where my lineage comes from, I ran into this American nun who was toughing it out in Seoul in a temple. And she said, she said, yep. In that case, the sangha means the monastic sangha of monks and nuns. She said, what people do not understand is that the sangha includes everyone. Nice people, mean people, good people, bad people, neat people, sloppy people, organized people, chaotic people. And those words were incredibly true and are true today, despite any romantic notions we might have. So what is it that we wish to free ourselves from? My mother died of cancer in December of 1907 after five years of battling uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, large cell lymphoma. 
She fought very hard. She wanted to live. And she did not let go easily. She just hung on, hung on, hung on. It was very painful, caused a lot of separation. Our family was worn out. And so when she finally did let go in early December in her home in Virginia, she was able, both my parents were able to die in their homes, which was their wish. They didn't want to go into the hospital. It was a real blessing. So when she finally died and I got the news, I got the call I'd been waiting for, uh, I went to sleep and I just felt a sense of great release and relief. And I woke up in the morning and I told my son, who was around, I think, uh, well, I don't know how old he was at the time, maybe eight or something like that, that uh, I said, Grandma died yesterday. And I said, and all I can think of, because she suffered so much, is what's written on uh, Dr. King's gravestone. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. So I said, that's, that's, you know, I'm just so happy for Grandma. She's free at last. And my son, who was raised, he has his own Dharma practice. I'm not quite sure what it is. He's in his room a lot with his computer. <laughs> but he does uh, have his own practice. Uh, immediately said, uh, he was around eight, he said, we do not need to be free at last We are already free, and we do not want to be freed from freedom. So that confused me greatly. Um, uh, However, it seemed there was something true in there that I should think about. And mainly being that uh, uh, we do not need to be free at last. We are free at this moment, and we need to claim that. So we all know the ways in which we suffer, and we all know the ways in which those who are close to us suffer. And those of us who read the news or watch the news or hear about the news hear of the seemingly endless stories of intense suffering that is going on in the world. And there are real reasons for this suffering. So this is why I encourage you to take up your practice as you leave, while you're here, and anywhere you may find yourself by cultivating your courage and your bravery. Because in order to be with our own suffering, our own shame, our blame, our regrets, our fears of the future, regrets of the past, fears of the future, or maybe pleasant memories that may come and we feel, um, wow, that's pleasant. And then the fear comes, maybe it won't happen again, or maybe it will end. Uh, 
So in this practice, we really open ourselves to all of that fully, and it is no easy thing. Each of you is here through an act of personal bravery, and you have remained here through many acts of personal courage. So let me propose to you, as the magnificent beings that you are, so full of courage, determination, and potential, that meditation is the practice of spiritual life, and spiritual life is creativity. In my experience, life is huge. It's wild. It's uncontrollable. It's beautiful and horrifying and boring and strange. And if we cling to the forms of our practice, even they will not save us from this huge and wild and uncontrollable and boring and horrifying life that is always swirling around us and within us. At some point, we even have to let go of the forms of what we may think of as practice. So I will leave you with the story of a teacher who manifested to me outside of Galveston, Texas, in December 1984. This was not a mystic vision. This was a real teacher who has probably passed. It was on the beach, and I was with a group of students who were from Canada and Michigan, were driving down in a uh, van, to do a retreat outside of Mexico City that our teacher was teaching. So we were joining the the local Mexican Sangha, and it was a truly international retreat. And as usual, we had no money whatsoever. So we were driving down in this van that was full of people, a lot of us with no seat belts, and we would find places to camp at night, and then we had this like electric hot pot that we would find an electric outlet and put it in, and we would make our, those really cheap packages of, of ramen for our dinner. That was kind of what we were subsisting on. And, and so, as usual, we had no money, and we were just kind of eking by, and it was kind of raw and wild and certainly a lot of, a lot of fun. And so there we were out in Texas getting ready to cross the border, And we had spent the night in a campground, and the beach was right there on the Gulf. So Sujata, who was a senior uh, student and kind of our boss, therefore uh, woke us up in the morning before dawn and said, everyone meditate on the beach. So I remember it was a very windless, humid, muggy morning, 
the sky was beginning to glimmer with a kind of a pearly light. It was quite warm. It was really pleasant. And so I found my little power spot. You know, I sort of picked my spot. It was a beach. We could all spread out. And I made myself a little kind of indentation in the sand with a little kind of hummock of outcrop of something against my back. It was really perfect. It was very nice. And so I sat down and, uh, you know, I began to meditate. And it was really nice. It was very quiet. It was calm. It was really peaceful. Nobody was annoying me. Uh, You know, all these people we'd been crowded with in the van, they were off doing their own thing. It was pretty much a kind of a peak meditation experience. You know, it was pretty good, right? It was pretty good. And as I'm meditating, I suddenly feel, it feels like someone has taken a pin and has poked it into my butt from underneath, like this little prick. And I thought, "Eh," you know, little body sensation, that happens. I'll just sit here. I thought, I'll ignore it. And I was trained that, that until the bell rings or the meditation periods, you don't move. You just don't move unless you're injuring yourself. You don't. So I thought, fine. Poke. I tried to ignore that, but I was beginning to get agitated. And then it started getting like really definite, like someone was under there with a pin going, poke. Poke, poke. And I just finally thought, to hell with it. This is not right. So I got up, and I turned around, and I looked down, and I swear, this is, I did not, I'm not making this up, like right in the center, underneath where my butt had been, there was this tiny crab. It was about the size of the tip of my pinky. It was the smallest crab I'd ever seen in my life. And... Um, I had been blocking up its air hole, <laughs> and it was just mad as hell. I, you know, I'm not making this up, actually, because I saw it with my own eyes. It was there, and it was dancing around, waving its pincers in the air, like, you idiot! Why has it taken you so long to move? And I just said, I am so sorry. I was trained not to move. I thought I was doing the right thing. I was meditating and adding to the peacefulness of the world. And here I was. You couldn't even breathe. So freedom and liberation means that we become wise. We know when not to move. We know when to move. We know when to uh, pamper ourselves and take care of ourselves. And we know when to take care of ourselves by pushing ourselves and turning up the heat on what we're doing a little bit. We know how to respond with kindness to others. That may include some pretty tough love. I'm a mother. I may speak of that. We're not perfect, but through the freedom, through the wisdom, through that compassionate heart that arises as we practice, gradually, 
day by day, and little by little, we grow wise. So thank you very much for listening.